Good morning. My name is Bob Yoder. I'm the campus pastor here, and so glad to see so many people here uh, this morning. Um, many of you have heard our speaker for this morning, Dr. Ibu Patel, if you were here last night for the Yoder Public Affairs Lecture, um, or if you were as part of the ICC class this morning at 9 o'clock, or if you were in the business capstone class at 12.30 uh, yesterday afternoon, um, or if you were one of the staff or administrators who engaged both Megan Johnson from Interfaith Youth Corps and Ibu for kind of a strategic session yesterday afternoon, or if you were one of the handful of students who had a nice kind of casual conversation at 4 o'clock. Um, they've pretty much been, ever since they arrived in our campus at 11.30 yesterday, and when they depart our campus at a little afternoon today, it's been fairly solid. I think there's been some time to sleep, and they're both saying yes to that. So. We are so delighted uh, that they have been here with us and so delighted to hear Ibu um, speak again this morning. If you haven't been in any of those settings, let me give you just a very brief introduction of Dr. Ibu Patel. He is a leading voice in the movement for interfaith cooperation and founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps, a national nonprofit working to make interfaith cooperation a social norm. He is the author of several books, Acts of Faith, Sacred Ground, and interfaith leadership. And named by the US News and World Report as one of America's best leaders of 2009, Dr. Patel served on President Obama's inaugural Faith Council. He is a regular contributor to the public conversation around religion in America and a frequent speaker on the topic of religious pluralism. He holds a doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University, where he studied on a Rhodes Scholarship. For over 15 years, Ibu has worked with governments, social sector organizations, and college and university campuses to help realize a future where religion is a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of division. Ibu is also a husband, a father, lives in Chicago, and is a new friend here to Goshen College. So Dr. Patel. All right, good morning, everyone. So, um, I'm nine or 10 years old, and uh, you know how in, in school there's the in-group, and then there's the out-group, and then there's like the outer group, and then there was me, <laughs> somewhere like four circles away. So you can imagine how thrilled I am to get this invitation to this kid's birthday party. I don't even remember his name now, Brian or Steve or something like that. And now that I'm a dad of a seven and 10 year old, I know exactly how these invitations happen. Basically, you tell your, your kid, you are not having a birthday party unless you invite the person six rings out from the inner circle. So that's how I got invited to this party. But at the time, I didn't know that. I just thought that maybe Brian or Steve or whatever his name was secretly wanted to be friends with me. So the birthday party is on a Sunday afternoon. Sunday morning rolls around, my mom has uh, put the invitation on the fridge with a magnet, and she looks at it more closely, and she's like, oh, uh, Brian's parents are gonna be cooking hot dogs uh, um, at home for the snack or for dinner. And then, because we're Muslim and don't eat pork, and because my mom was too much of a recent immigrant to call Brian's mom and ask what kind of hot dogs they were cooking, she hands me uh, a little plastic bag with two Vienna beef hot dogs. And she's like, go have Brian's parents cook these up in a separate, presumably unporked pan for you. 
So here I am, nine years old. It's like the middle of June. I'm holding two hot dogs in my, can you imagine how awkward it is for a nine-year-old boy to hide two hot dogs on his body going to, <laughs> to a birthday party in June? I look at my mom, I'm like, first you named me Ibu, right? And now you, seriously, I have to take my own hot dogs to this kid's birthday party? So whatever, I'm a dutiful nine-year-old, so I arrive, and I somehow figure out how to hide these, these, un, you know, these beef hot dogs uh, uh, um, somewhere on my body so that they're relatively imperceptible. And after whatever it is that nine-year-olds do at birthday parties, I kind of sneak into the kitchen. Uh, I kind of find a dark corner where I can make my foray to ask Brian's parents to, to cook these up. And lo and behold, there's this other kid in this dark corner. And he's holding a little plastic bag with two hot dogs. I'm like, say, man, are, are you Muslim? He's like, no, my name is Chaim, I'm Jewish, and my mom sent me with these two hot dogs. I'm like, I have no idea what Jewish means, but you and me, we are gonna be friends. <laughs> so that's the first time I meet a Jewish kid. I'm literally eight or nine years old, and my initial instinct is, we're gonna be friends, right? Like, you and I have something really important in common, and it's not just we don't eat pork, it's like feeling like the outsider at this kid's birthday party. And I've actually been reflecting on that story a lot lately because as you all know, Goshen college students are very worldly. There are plenty of, plenty of examples of where you know, Muslims or Jews or people from any variety of identities Indians and Pakistanis, whatever it might be, where they initially meet each other and their instinct is not, we are going to be friends, right? Their instinct is, you are, you are not my friend. And I've been thinking a lot about what was it about that, that moment in which my instinct was, we're gonna be friends. And the fact is that it's really simple. It was the situation. It was a situation in which this particular Muslim kid, me, and this particular Jewish kid, our instinct was we're in solidarity together. That question, what kinds of situations make it more likely for people to cooperate? That question has been really present for me in the past few years. One of the reasons is because I have kids and, um, and I kind of watch them in their different situations and it's crazy how different they are, right? I'll give you a, a, um, an example uh, uh, about my kid and other kids in the school. So uh, send my kids Zayd and Khalil off to summer camp this past summer, uh, just you know, day camp. Uh, nine to nine to five kind of thing, and and we're looking at the list of other campers that are going, other kids that are going to this camp. And my son Zay, it's like, oh man, there's a bunch of kids who are mean in this camp. You know, they're mean to me in school. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, go the first day, and and we'll see what happens. We'll figure it out. He comes back the first day, and he's happy as a clam. And I ask him that night, I'm like, you know, were these kids, Mike or Dave or whoever, were they mean to you? He's like, no. He's like, Dad, why are they mean to me in school but not mean to me at camp? Really interesting question, right? Uh, Einstein had this observation that the activity of 
the particle has everything to do with the energy field around it. What am I saying? What I'm saying is so much of who we are and how we act has to do with the situations that we are in. Now, here's another insight. That school that my kid goes to, that school didn't fall from the sky. It wasn't like designed in heaven and fell that way to earth. People create that school. Human beings teaching it, human beings lead it, human beings coaching it. In other words, it's a situation that human beings create in which some kids find it easier to be mean. That summer camp wasn't designed in heaven, didn't fall from the sky to earth. Human beings created that. See what I'm saying? Human beings create environments in which it is easier to be mean to other people or it is easier to cooperate. Human beings create environment, and this is a line I get from Dorothy Day, in which it is easier to be bad or easier to be good. I tell you what an awful lot of interfaith leadership is about. It's how do you create an environment in which it is easier for people to cooperate. If you are running a basketball team or a summer camp or a classroom in which you have young people from different religious identities and traditions, what kind of environment would you create? What activities would you run? What discussions would you have? What would be the basic mood and feel such that it would be easier for people to cooperate? A young man I met yesterday uh, was a participant in Seeds of Peace. Where is he? Is he here? There he is, my man over there, right? And my colleague Megan was a counselor at Seeds of Peace. It's a camp that brings young Israelis and young Palestinians together in cooperation. And part of what is interesting to them is, wait a second, we, are, we come from an environment where it is easier for us to not like each other for all kinds of reasons. But somehow, you have created an environment in which it's easier to cooperate. A huge part of interfaith leadership is creating these kinds of environments. I want to go into some of the scholarship of this. This is uh, uh, an area of, of scholarship called social psychology. I want to cite a couple of studies that have been particular powerful for, particularly powerful for me in realizing just how important this is. And then I want to get into you as a leader, right? And what, what would it look like for you to be the kind of person who creates situations where it is easier for people to cooperate? But I'm going to begin with this. You know who I think the worst person in America is? The list is long, I know. I think the worst person in America, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, is Jerry Springer. I will tell you why. I will tell you why. Because every single person on that show, every single person on stage, cussing and fighting and throwing chairs, they are a better person elsewhere. They have had moments of kindness, they have had moments of grace, they've had moments of cooperation, they've had moments of sadness, they've had moments of goodness, they've had moments of beauty, and Jerry Springer literally creates an environment where he says, come and be your worst self. Come and be a jerk for the entire world to see. 
you can do nothing worse than create an environment that encourages people to be their worst self, right? Uh, we Muslims have a term for this. It's called your nafs, right? Your nafs is your lower self. Your nafs come out in certain environments, in certain interactions, and your better self comes out in other interactions. How do you build environments where people can be their best selves? Environments in which it is easier for people from diverse backgrounds to cooperate. Here's some of the social psychology on this. So, a guy named Muzaffar Sharif, some decades back, uh, runs a summer camp simulation uh, called the Robber's Cave Simulation. This was back in the times when you didn't have to get research permission to do some crazy stuff. So he brings a group of 13-year-old boys uh, to a, a, a camp in Kansas called, called Robber's Cave. And he separates them into two groups, and these two groups kind of immediately begin to develop kind of strong groups, some anthropologists would call it kind of tribal identity and identification. They give themselves names, the eagles and the rattlers. They create flags for themselves. They have chants and they have songs, right? Uh, you can kind of imagine this whole thing. And for the first week of the camp, Sharif and his researchers create a set of situations in which these boys are encouraged to be at each other's throats. So for example, they uh, tell the eagles that there's a pizza party one night and it starts at 5.30. And they tell the Rattlers that the pizza party starts at 5.45. You know anything about 13-year-old boys? How much pizza do you think is left at 5.45? So like literally, they have to physically separate these kids because the Rattlers show up and the Eagles have eaten all the pizza and they see the disappointment on the Rattlers' faces and they're kind of happy about it, right? Ensue like, you know, uh, eagles chants and songs and cue the fighting. It's like literally a situation designed for conflict. Okay, so the, they do this set of activities this, this whole week. The next week, they create a set of activities meant to reverse the conflict. So for example, they put all the boys on this bus to the swimming hole and they have the driver drive the bus into a ditch and all the counselors say, hey, the only way we're gonna get the bus out of the ditch is if everybody cooperates to push the bus, right? And so all these 13-year-old kids, they start to be involved in these cooperative activities, things that they have to do together. And lo and behold, they maintain their eagle and rattler identities, but they become, they also develop a robber's cave camp identity as well. There's kind of a superordinate identity that emerges. Why? Because the activities in the situation have changed. They are activities that make it easier for people to want to cooperate. By the way, none of those activities fell from the sky or rose from the ground. Counselors ran them, right? Counselors ran them. So here's a second example. Anybody heard of the Stanford prison experiment, the Zimbardo prison experiment? Okay, so, so you all know the basic story, right? So I saw this when I was in high school. I saw the, 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 you know, the old school film strip of this when I was in high school. Um, so you know the basic story, which is Philip Zimbardo, who's a professor at Stanford University, a social psychologist, creates this prison simulation where he takes a group of supposedly psychologically healthy 19, 20-year-old males from the Northern California area, many of them Stanford and Berkeley students, you know, uh, uh, deems them, deems them uh, physically fit and psychologically healthy and randomly chooses half of them to be prison guards and half of them to be prisoners. And unbelievably, like by the first day or two, they've fallen into their roles. 
and the 19-year-old boys who are supposed to be just 19-year-old college students on a break begin to act as prisoners. And the 19-year-old guys who are supposed to be just college dudes on break begin to act as guards. And they start to harangue the prisoners and they start to be violent towards them and they start to take advantage of them. It's amazing to kind of see the day-to-day of this. So I've always been struck by this experiment and somehow five, six, seven years ago, I meet Philip Simbardo. Meet the guy who, who designed this 40 years ago. And I ask him about it and he says, I have a story to tell you that illustrates just how powerfully situations dictate our behavior. He says that uh, during the time he's running this experiment, which also, by the way, happens to be at a time before you have to get research permission for doing crazy things on human beings, like you can't do this anymore. Um, so nobody get, an, get any idea. You can maybe do this on mice, but you can't do this in human beings. Uh, Dr. Zimbardo is dating a graduate student at Stanford at the time, later becomes his wife, and they're going out for pizza or whatever that night, and he says, I, I gotta run my experiment till nine, so I can't go out until later, but why don't you come by around eight, and uh, um, you know, just see, see what we're doing. You'll be interested in it. Again, like this is back in the Pleistocene era when you could actually, you, know, you didn't have to get permission to do this crazy stuff. So, so Zimbardo's girlfriend comes by, and Zimbardo has kind of set himself up in this observation deck it's above this simulated prison where he can see everything, kind of a, a, a um, whatever, like a one-way mirror kind of thing where, where he can see out but people can't see, can't see him. And he says to his girlfriend kind of excitedly, so it's, it's eight o'clock, at 8.07, this prison guard will walk around and he'll kind of have this evil grin on his face because he's really got it out for this prisoner. And he'll grab this prisoner by the scruff of his neck and drag him out of his cell. Like, because Zimbardo's been doing this for seven or eight days, he has seen these patterns develop. And he's kind of excitedly narrating to his girlfriend what's, what's gonna happen. And lo and behold, all of that stuff takes place. He's like, see, I told you, I told you this guy was gonna be really rough. See, I told you this prisoner was gonna start to cry. And at some point, this is Zimbardo telling me this, right? His girlfriend looks at him and says, Phil, that's not a prisoner. That's a 19-year-old kid. Phil, you're not a warden. You're a professor. And Zimbardo says to me, I fell into my own experiment. That's crazy, right? He had created this simulation. He had been the researcher in it and just standing in the observation deck, watching these 19 year olds adopt the role of prisoner and prison guard, he had adopted the role of warden to the point where he was, he was like taking sick pleasure out of watching this. That's how powerful situations are in our activity. Now, of course, the real lesson here is that Zimbardo created that situation. Jerry Springer creates his situation. It's an artificial set. Muzaffar Sarif creates a set of activities in which 13-year-old boys are at each other's throats, and then he creates a set of activities where they cooperate. My birthday party situation I'm in an environment in which I 
my instinct is to say you and I are gonna be friends. So here's my question for you. As future coaches and educators and CEOs, as people who are gonna run organizations, as people who are gonna shape environments, how are you gonna create situations in which people who come from different identities and backgrounds, who are Jews and Muslims, who are Indians and Pakistanis, who are Christians and atheists, they, it is easier for them to cooperate. What discussions are you gonna hold? What activities are you going to design? What mood are you going to create such that people have the instinct of, hey, what can we do together? As opposed to, I am at your throat. So I'm gonna illustrate this by way of one of my favorite children's stories. It's, uh, it's the stone soup story, y'all. Anybody know this story? It's like, like a classic Sunday school story, right? So uh, the story goes like this. Uh, it's a starving village and um, people are in their huts and they're isolated. And they're afraid of each other and they're hungry. And uh, yeah, they say, you know, that person across the street, they, they, they speak a different language. They, they have an accent. We're, we don't deal with them. Right? The, those folks around the way, they pray to God in a different way. We don't, we don't deal with them. That cat kitty corner, he doesn't pray to God at all. We don't deal with them, right? They'd rather be alone in their huts, doors locked, blinds shut, not dealing with each other. Traveler rolls into this village. She sets up camp in the town square, builds a roaring fire. It's got a pack on her back. Brings out a large pot, a wooden ladle, a stone. Goes down to the river, fills the pot with water. Goes back to the town square, puts the water, the pot on the fire, takes out the stone, places it in the pot, starts to stir. One of the kids in the village gets curious, been peeking through the blinds, Finally, his curiosity gets the better of him. He unlocks the door, goes careening towards the town square, sits down. His friends, different huts around, start to see this, and they start to come out into the town square. And finally, the parents, their curiosity gets the better of them too, and they show up. His first kid says to the woman, what are you doing? And she stirs, she looks up, she says, I'm making stone soup. Everybody's like, mmm. And she keeps stirring. Somebody's like, hey, we're hungry, is it ready? She takes a little sip from the ladle. Almost there, needs some carrots. One person says, well, we got carrots. Goes back to the hut, finds the carrots which have been locked away in this dark cupboard just in case anybody came to the door asking for carrots, right? Want it hidden away as far as possible. Gets the carrots out of the cupboard, brings them to the woman. She chops them up, throws them in the pot, stirs it up. Is it ready? We're hungry. Takes a sip, not quite there needs some potatoes. Somebody says, we got potatoes. Goes back, finds the potatoes. Again, corner of the house, dark cupboard, doesn't want to share potatoes with anybody, right? In case anybody came to the door. But this woman says the, st the stone soup needs potatoes. She's offering. She comes back. Woman chops the potatoes up, throws them into the soup, stirs, tastes, needs some celery, needs some salt, needs some spice. Turns out somebody's got celery, somebody's got salt, somebody's got spice. So you know the end of the story, right? Somebody's got bowls, somebody's got spoons, somebody's got bread, turns out. So at the end, there's this like massive village feast. And these people are talking and laughing 
The woman kind of smiles. She goes and cleans out her pot at the river, puts it in her pack. Stone, wooden ladle, rolls on to the next starving, isolated village. What did she do? Why is this such a powerful story of cooperation? First thing this woman had was a vision. Right? First thing she had was a vision. She looked at what anybody else thought was a random collection of people, this disparate group of folks who happened to live in close quarters. She saw a community. She had a vision. She saw a community. Right? The second thing that this woman had was a little bit of knowledge. She had a sense that each person in this community the Hindus, the Jews, the Latinos, the white folks, the black folks, the Indians, the pockets, they all had something odd. They had a gift. They brought something. Gift was hidden away, but it was there. It's the third thing that the woman did. She creates an activity in which people want to cooperate. That's the real trick, right? She creates an activity in which people want to cooperate. Note, she does not roll into the village and say, hey, you fools, bring out your vegetables. She creates an activity and says, hey, your gift, bring it here. Hey, your gift, bring it here. Hey, your gift, bring it here. Hey, by the way, what happens when you bring your gifts to the center of the village? Starving people feast. What does that look like when you're the principal of a school? What does that look like when you're the CEO of a hospital? What does that look like when you're the head of a summer camp or the coach of an athletic team or the director of an athletic program? Or when you start your own business, right? What does it look like to have a vision of that group of people from this range of different identities who, whose you know, communities might be at each other's throats on the other side of the world? What does it look like to create an environment, a mood, a discourse, a set of activities where it is easier for those folks to cooperate. That, I think, is interfaith leadership. Having a vision, this disparate group of people, it can be a community. Having a knowledge base, those folks, those Muslims, those Hindus, those Christians, those atheists, those Jews, they are more than what I hear about on TV. They have gifts. They have things to bring. They have things to contribute. And finally, being able to design a set of activities that actually encourage cooperation. That's really hard. It's actually why I have such high respect for educators, especially of the summer camp variety, because what you do all the time, probably half of you, you know, were involved in summer camp or, or counselors, you create activities in which kids who do not get along in school somehow cooperate in summer camp. I think that's the most beautiful thing in the world, right? So how do you do that? at the city level, at the national level, at the global level, create situations in which it is easier for people to cooperate. I wanna end with this story from, uh, from the Islamic tradition. One of the things we talk about a lot at IFYC is that you know, these, are, these are civic imperatives. Like how do you have a Goshen college or a, a city of Goshen or a state of Indiana or a nation or a world 
if people from different identities refuse to cooperate. Right? You, it's a civic imperative, but it's also something that's deep within our religious traditions. There are Muslim, uh, Christian versions of this, there are Hindu versions, there are Mennonite versions, there are Sufi versions, or Jewish versions. I want to tell you a Muslim story about the importance of this kind of work. So this is from the great Sufi poet Farid Adin Attar. It's a medieval poem called The Conference of the Birds, and it begins like this, that of all the species, the birds were the most despondent because they felt that everybody else, all these other species, they had a god, they had a deity, but the birds had none. One of the birds, the hoopoe bird, says actually we do have a deity. It just lives far, far away. His name is the Seamurg, but I can take you to the Seamurg. It's a long and arduous journey. It's gonna take a lot of effort, a lot of courage. You're gonna be risking a lot, but if you really want to see our deity, I can take you. And all of a sudden, all these birds who, you know, were despondent about not having a deity and then were excited about the fact of, of there being one, well, all of a sudden when they had to like risk something and it took courage and it took effort, they were like, ah, we don't really wanna do, you know, we don't really wanna do this journey thing, right? So the first thing the hoopoe has to do is go bird by bird to the eagle, to the hawk, to the dove, and convince that bird that this journey is worth its effort. The hoopoe has to be a mobilizer and an organizer. The hoopoe takes this group of birds across seven valleys and mountains. Again, an arduous journey. And all along the way, they're complaining, this, you know, this is hard, it's taking effort, da, 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 da. All along the way, the hoopoe has to narrate the beauty of the seamurk, has to keep on keeping the vision present and salient, right? It's hard, but we're gonna get there. I mean, for those of you who've played athletics, good coaches do this, right? So we're running wind sprints so that in the fourth quarter of the game next Friday night, we can outrun these people, right? You, in, the, in these moments of effort, once you got your people together, you gotta keep on telling the story of what the vision looks like, of what the destination is like, of why it's worth the effort. So they finally get to the land of the Seamurg and they cross this magnificent lake and they come before the gates behind which is supposed to be their deity. They've made it, right? And the gates open and in front of them is this shimmering mirror and what they see is a reflection of themselves. And the hoopoe reminds them that Seamurg is Persian for 30 birds. These 30 birds who've made this journey, that's the deity. This group of diverse creatures who have accomplished a journey together. And I love that. Why? Because it's a reminder to me that creating situations in which people or birds, as it may be, are willing to cooperate on something that's really, really hard, but in the end, worth it. You know, being that leader, being the woman in the stone soup story, the traveler, being the hoopoe bird in the Uttar story, the conference of the birds, being the person who puts forth the vision, 
who organizes and mobilizes these different folks, who creates the activities and the story that tell people that the destination is worth it, worth it that's not just a civic value. That is a sacred value. A group of diverse people who becomes a community, that's a holy thing. It doesn't fall from the sky and it doesn't rise from the ground. It takes leaders. It takes interfaith leaders. That's why I'm here and that's who you are. Thank you. I think we have time for some questions. Hi, my name is Katie. Um, having served on Obama's advisory council for faith-based neighborhood and partnerships, how are you and others you worked with responding to our current president and his administration's obvious attacks towards certain religions and cultures? And how do you have, and do you have any advice for students living on, in a small community on how to speak and act on interfaith and culture problems that we see in the present political yeah. climate? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, it's hurtful and it's extremely disappointing, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, call me an optimist, but I think at, at the end of the day, beauty wins, right? And, and so what, what I mean by that is I think it's important to whatever the ugliness of this moment might be, and it's very ugly, is to, is to continue to tell a story of, of how beautiful it is and how important it is when people from diverse backgrounds work together on common things, right? So, so I don't think that at the end of the day, anger wins. So however angry I might be about the current situation, that I try to not let that get into my discourse, right? Like if I just came here and spat fire, I mean, it just, it just doesn't last very long. It doesn't last very long for me, it doesn't last very long for an audience, right? I, I want people to say, look, this, this interfaith cooperation thing, that, that, is like, that is like how the world is intended to be, and I wanna be a part of writing the next chapter in that, right? And part of writing the next ch chapter in that is saying we are at a moment of ugliness that we are going to collectively overcome. Um, one of the things I told the faculty group last night is, is ugly moments have their uses as well. Um, and so part of the use of a really ugly moment is people realize the urgency of a situation, of an, of an issue, right? So there's oftentimes, and I have to like convince people that paying attention to religious diversity and trying to be an interfaith leader matters at all. I don't have to convince people of that as much anymore, right? They, they know that it matters because, because the ugliness is right in their face. So the question is, what can you do about it? And part of my answer to that is, is tell, tell stories of how beautiful it is when people from diverse backgrounds come together into a community and accomplish something that's for the dignity of all people. I've heard that, I, I, it's not like I talked to Mr. Obama, but I've heard that he's mad. I'm a few inches shorter than she is, um, so I keep asking you questions. I really like it's to great. Go, so I'm gonna- It's what college is about. Yeah. Um, this is um, just a quick question. Um, like, um, in all the stories in the Quran, like, do you have a favorite one? Ah, I actually do have a favorite story in the Quran. I'll tell it quickly. Thank you for that question. So in Surah 2 of the Quran, um, it's the creation story. And uh, um, God creates 
Adam, the first human being, the, the first prophet, from a lump of clay and gives, gives Adam his breath. Uh, I actually write about the story in, in Acts of Faith also. Um, in, in God's breath is called his rule, right? And so uh, uh, he creates Adam through clay and his breath, and he says to Adam, you are gonna be my Abdin Halifa, my servant and representative upon creation, and uh, calls the angels forth and says to the angels, I want you to honor this, I want you to honor humankind in its representative form, Adam, who I have given the vicegerency over creation. And the angels say, why would we honor a creature who will only fiddle and destroy? And God says, I know what you do not know. And then God sets up a, a contest between prophet Adam and the angels. And he says to the angels, tell me the different names of creation. And the angels say, the only knowledge we have is to sing the glories of your name, O God. We don't know the names of creation. God turns to Adam and gives Adam the ability to narrate the names of creation. But I remember in my kind of return back to Islam, I'm reading this in the Quran. It's, I'm, I'm a graduate student at Oxford, and I, 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 I'm looking at this and I'm like, the word that sticks out to me is, is names. Why? Because it's plural. It's not name. Creation is not a monoculture. It's not the same thing over and over and over again, right? Creation. God has made it diverse. And God has given human beings the gift of naming, narrating, and flowing with that diversity. That's the distinctive gift that we have. That's the reason that God vouches for us in the face of the angel's denial and says, I know what you do not know. And so in reading that, I was like, this is, as I said, this is a sacred value, right? There are similar stories in Christianity. It, it is a sacred value to positively steward creation which is inherently and meant to be diverse. So that, I would say, is my favorite story in the Quran. Thank you. Hi, my name is Katya Norton. Um, I'm a first year here at Goshen College. And I have a question. Um, we were talking about in our ICC class that you must have like incredible amounts of stamina, motivation, and energy to do what you do and to start the IFYC. And how did you keep up all of that energy and motivation to do all of that. It must have been like pretty tiring, is, from what I can I'm imagine, about to crash so. after the last 24 hours. <laughs> no, exa exactly. I mean, this is exactly. a Mennonite work ethic, right? Yeah, no, exactly, and um, so that's my question. So, so uh, you know what? The answer to that is kind of. So, I mean, I, you know, I take a lot of time off, right? I'm serious, right? So like, I am, um, uh, I, I have a friend named Paul Rochenbush who's uh, Paul Brandeis Rochenbush, whose grandfather was a Supreme Court justice, uh, Justice Brandeis, and Paul told me a line that he said his grandfather would say, I can get 12 months worth of work into 11 months, but I cannot get 12 months worth of work into 12 months. And he would say that every time he took his month-long vacation, right? He says, I take a month away from anything, from everything from Supreme Court duties, from national duties, so that I can come back fresh, right? I love that. So, you know, when I was like 19 or 20 or 24 or whatever, like I, you know, I would, I would brag about how hard I worked. I don't, I don't, I, yeah, you know what I brag about now? I, I'm the assistant coach of my son's basketball team, right? I mean, I work hard, don't get me wrong, I work hard, right? But, but um, like, I live a full human life. I love, I love being married, I love my kids, I love watching Notre Dame football. Right, so, so how do you, 
I, I am not just a human working. As much as I love my job and as important as I think that it is, I'm not just a human working, right? There's all these other dimensions to life, but I didn't know that at 23 or 24. I really thought that like the, if, if you know, I would, uh, it was, uh, um, you had to give 90 hours a week to, to your work. I, I, it's not, that's not a three-dimensional life now, right? Now, when, you know, we, we talk about this at IFYC that you know, we, we lead what I would like to think is a, is a really balanced organization and people have time for families and hobbies and all kinds of things. But you know, as Al Davis used to tell the Oakland Raiders, uh, 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 play like hell when you need to, right? We're willing to do that, right? We're willing to work when we need to work. But living a balanced life in which different parts of your life are feeding you, it's, that's just, that has been really, really important to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this 17 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Ibu, thank you so very much for being with us, and Megan also being with us as well these uh, last 24 hours. Let's extend our thanks to both of them, and, and especially for Ibu this morning's talk. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Go in peace.